0: Hello and welcome back to a brand new series of The Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, will a new streaming service make the BBC the home of dance? Can audio versions of print articles help save the world's biggest newspapers? And is arts journalism on its last legs? Plus, the big themes from the first all-virtual Edinburgh TV Festival, and in the Media Quiz, we celebrate the winners of the Panned Emmys, the first major industry awards show since the start of the pandemic it's all to come in today's media podcast well i hope you are well Uh, i'm good thanks for asking and welcome to our michaelmas term it's it's going to be a weird year for the industry that's for sure and to help us navigate those choppy waters let's welcome our guests first up former editor of broadcast and now head of communications at itn lisa campbell's back on the show hello lisa Hello. Uh it is ITN's 65th anniversary this week, which I believe is the blue sapphire.
2: It is indeed. Yes. How,
0: how are you celebrating?
2: Uh we've actually partnered with my uh, with my old crowd at broadcast. Um we've got a microsite running um which is freely available for everyone to check out. There's some fantastic stuff on there actually. We've got a a timeline. Um we've started with the 50s and 60s our very first news broadcast. Um we've ITN actually had the first female news broadcaster um, and there's also an interview with who her where who? she's Pop
1: um,
2: Barbara uh, Barbara Mandel uh-huh. um, and um, she is she's brilliant you know she's sort of saying um, back in those days we weren't allowed to do wars and earthquakes we had to just do cookery and yeah so it's it's quite an insight. Um, There's, you know, the moon landings which apparently ITN sort of, you know, blew the competition out of the water. There's some brilliant stuff. Kathy Newman takes us behind the scenes on her very famous interview with Max Mosley when uh, she kind of got him to admit um, about his... A racist pamphlet. Um And she talks about him, you know, being in the green room with him. And it's just, it's really fascinating, actually, um, that sort of story. And then we've got next week, we've got Jon Snow talking about his interview with Idi Amin. Uh, I won't spoil the punchline, but essentially, he ends up on an aeroplane on his private jet with him. Um, Idi Amin falls asleep and Jon Snow spots his gun. So uh, yes, read all about oh, it next great. week. Yeah, I will,
0: it Sounds like a good few hours uh, watching that. Also with us today, someone who definitely has lots of jokes about I mean, it is the creative director of Folder Media and the guy who got at Matt on Twitter, Matt Deegan. Hello, Matt. Uh, hi, Oli. Uh, you're very lucky. You got to be on the last show of the last series and the first show of this series. I don't know what that means, apart I, from I, your availability.
1: I've just been waiting here since that, that happened. <laughs>
0: Uh, now, this is usually the point where you bamboozle us with some brave new entrepreneurial adventure. So, um, yeah, what have you been up to? Uh,
1: so, we've just started recording the second series of Nappy Days, which is the Teen Mom UK podcast for MTV. Good That's title. quite exciting. And... Um, uh, with my British Podcast Awards hat on, we have taken over the Australian Podcast Awards. So we've just been doing a bit of work on that as well.
0: A bit of work on, I guess, learning some lessons from your lockdown ceremony though, right? Or are you planning a live event?
1: Uh, no. So Australia has kind of mixed lockdown uh, at the moment. So it's going to be another virtual ceremony uh, in Australia. Uh, but we're going to take what? They've been doing uh, in Oz for the last few years and adding a bit of what we've learned in the UK um, to do a a ceremony in November, but it's very exciting.
0: Okay, well, I guess that is one that actually people in the UK can watch as well if it is virtual, which is distinct, I guess, isn't it, from doing the live ceremony?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been really interesting getting involved in uh, the Australian podcast sector and talking to a lot of the operators and producers and seeing where there are differences and similarities with here uh, and what we can all learn from each other. It's nice.
0: And uh, last but not least, we welcome back the founder of Production House, Goldwaller. It's uh, my favourite Faraz, for Faraz for Osman. Hello. Hey. How you doing, Ali? Hi. I'm all right, thank you. I noticed that you've been tweeting uh, about the new Xbox. Is that a gambit to get a free one? And if not, what is the significance, do you think, of this moment in video gaming?
3: I. So I'm a bit of a nerd for the video games industry i think that it's a fascinating space that you know we've done a few programming bits and pieces around video games nothing to the scale that i'd like to do um but i just think that that space is really really interesting and it's just going to completely dominate popular culture towards the end of the year you know two of the biggest product launches that will probably have the biggest ad spend probably in the, in the for the next few years and the previous few years um both launching at a similar sort of time and i think it's just a really interesting space in in tech and popular culture and entertainment yeah nuts
0: and big deals going on as well right yeah
3: and 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 like the thing that i was tweeting about is microsoft buying bethesda studios um for an obscene amount of money that i can't even remember like 40 hundred million billion dollars um something strange like that um Bethesda are the are the guys that are behind classics like Doom, um, and uh, more more recent stuff like Elders, uh, Skyrim, which have been complete powerhouses in in the video games world for for a while. And it was a bit of a surprise move. Um, what's interesting is that with what Microsoft are doing is they have a service called Games Pass, which is effectively the Netflix for games. Um, and and so those games will be joining that service. And uh, and the looming war between PlayStation and Xbox, that's their kind of. Uh, that's their firing shot for it. So I think it's just going to be a really fascinating way of how we consume media. It's we've revolutionised music, TV's been revolutionised with with on demand, and and Microsoft are trying to do the same with video games. And it's just a case of are the old guys going to win with the PlayStation model, or is it going to be this this new wave of um, of how we consume a new type of media content uh, with the Xbox and Games Pass?
0: I guess the industry as a whole is is the one that hasn't had to pivot because of coronavirus, isn't it? Because you know, unlike they sold more. I don't know, audio products that go for commuters or, you know, theatre that's live events, you know, video gaming is something you've always done at home and it's something you can produce from lots of people's bedrooms.
3: Yeah, and, and from what from everything that I've read and um and uh, and seen, it's 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 just growing exponentially because everyone's been stuck in their homes and it's the highest form of quality. Uh, entertainment content that you can't you know you don't go to a cinema to play a video game you you know the only place the best place to play a video game is at home and and that's where we've all been
0: stuck for a little while so so yeah it's a, it's I once went to a place. cinema to play a video game I've always wanted to do it. it it's meant to be amazing yeah. it wasn't amazing because I'm not a gamer it was just really intimidating it was uh, when they launched Batman Arkham City and I was invited along for a press preview, and I sat in an IMAX cinema and was given the <laughs> control to be Batman and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing you are but Batman, they did that though, right. Thing- well, exactly. They, they, they say that to you to make you feel better and also to try and make you feel like you're a really good gamer. Like, obviously, you know what you're doing. So and I was just appalling. I mean, I just kept crashing into buildings. Anyway, um, before we start the show properly, because uh, <laughs> it still hasn't started yet, folks, <laughs> uh, we should probably mention uh, Harry Evans, uh, passing of a veteran British American journalist, Sir Harold Evans. Uh, he was a big inspiration, wasn't he, Lisa, in, in British Journalism?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I I remember doing my journalism trainee course and, um, you know, you get your reading list and it's all the the boring uh, spelling for journalists and everything. And then, you know, you talk about Harold Evans and, and read his book and it's just, you know, you think. So inspiring, so much that that one man achieved. Um, you know, from his investigation into the drug thalidomide uh, and the the impact that that had. Um, you know, so many investigations that we, you know, we were so sort of in awe of him. And it's you know interesting working at ITN now when you talk to the journalists about who who inspires them um, and who um, you know who who led them into their career. Um, Harold Evans is nearly always mentioned, you know, he's absolutely sort of, you know, godlike status for journalists. Signed at
0: the Times as well, I think that, you know, he was obviously a really influential figure in the design of newsprint. And he was a really big society figure with his wife, Tina Brown, and in magazines and publishing as well. And yet, the thing people are remembering him for on his death really seems to be pursuit of the truth.
2: Yeah, and perhaps that's because that's what we're all really craving at the moment. You know, we're, we're in a world of, declining trust and, and fake news. Um, you know, people can't trust COVID information or there's there's so many, so much misinformation. You know, have seen all the disturbing stories about people drinking bleach. Um, there's now all the anti-vaxxers. And, you know, we I think there's definitely just a desperate clamour for you know, the media that we can trust, journalists that we can trust, people doing proper in-depth investigations that, that we can rely on. Um, and I think, you know, we're all quite nostalgic for those times when you had publications and journalists like that um, and there just was not the... um well, social media, I suppose, ultimately, um, you know, causing all the trouble that it's causing.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Let's get on with uh, the the proper agenda now. We're going to start with some radio news this week with the launch of a new dance music streaming service from the BBC. Uh, Matt, fill us in on this one.
1: So this is Radio One Dance. It's a uh, it's a radio station. Sort of. I mean, it's it's a version uh, of Radio 1. Uh, it's going to be on BBC Sounds only, so it's not on broadcast. It's going to take dance programming from Radio 1, but also from the wider BBC, and sort of remix it into uh, a radio station. And it's something they actually talked about quite a long time ago, uh, and then it went quiet, particularly pre-lockdown. Uh, and then they've just sort of re-announced it recently, uh, and today Ofcom approved it to be able to be to launch i think it's launching uh the first or second week in, in october
0: on bbc sounds yeah
1: uh, just on bbc sounds that's but
0: not right. with a national dab license
1: so it's not going on broadcast and i think it's interesting tim davy in one of his first speeches said you know the bbc's not going to do any new uh, linear broadcasting um so you know, launching new radio stations on most platforms unless they were to take away something and replace it with something so i think this is this is the first linear channel for bbc sounds um i don't imagine it will be the last uh and i know that the you know, the the BBC and BBC Radio has seen what the commercial sex has done with spin-off channels, your kind of absolute 80s and absolute 90s, and I think there's a little bit of we'd like a bit of that, like there always is in in BBC growth. There is also a view, you know, for the BBC where um, they've been tasked by Ofcom and others about you know, reaching youth audiences or, or doing things differently. Um, they have to launch some new services to achieve those aims, and I guess it's one of those
0: yeah for as Ofcom decided that a public interest test wasn't needed but um understandably not everybody in commercial radio is is happy about that
3: yeah I don't I don't know if I necessarily agree with that I, I think that there are like most music there are two forms of dance music there's a really poppy commercial stuff um that Kiss FM and uh and various radio stations do really really well um but my sense is that when it comes to dance music a little bit like six music and guitar music there there is a really burgeoning independent scene um lots of new artists that, that break through in that space that that radio one have championed and uh, very very early on in my career that's that's where i started uh, working in the dance section of radio one and um and you can just tell that their support of uh that world and and exploding kind of was was really helped create that industry. And and so I I kind of feel like this is a a good thing. I think that Radio One have got a really good pedigree and heritage in this space, particularly when it comes to British dance music. And and I can see the value in this. I I think I agree that it doesn't need to be a linear radio station. And if it was, that would be more problematic. But beyond that, I, I think that there's this just helps bolster the BBC sounds
0: Happened. I see what you mean about um you know Kiss is more commercial and has a tighter playlist, and Heart Dance is more retro. But Matt, do you understand why Radio Centre said you know we're pissed off about this uh, because it's the kind of thing that commercial radio could do—a straight yeah, dance music.
1: I think also it's the sort of thing obviously commercial radio does do, whether that's Kiss Fresh, Kissery, Kiss Capital Extra. Um, there's a a, a quite a few new entrants doing dance music. Uh, I don't know. Kiss is, is still specialist um, weekends, evenings. Uh, So I can understand why they're grumpy. Uh, I think the, the problem with BBC expansions are, they do a huge amount of work internally to get it to the point where it launches fully formed, but that always ends up being a surprise to everybody else. They, 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 they're, they get annoyed that we get annoyed um, because they've been working on it for 18 months and it's the first time everyone else has heard about it. I'm a bit surprised that maybe they didn't try and do something perhaps a little bit more public service first. So if I was launching Radio 1 spin-off channels, maybe something around BBC introducing might have been a good idea okay, to, inter- say to, to introduce then. that idea. <laughs> I was no, say, come on. we would not have liked that.
0: Uh, I mean, Lisa. What Radio One really needs as its lifeblood is young audience. Will this do the trick for them?
2: Well, you know, I, I do think broadcasters have to go to where the audiences are, and they have to be, you know, constantly changing their output to, to cater for them. And the BBC is about universal appeal, and so whether you think dance music is not, um, you know it's not something the BBC should be doing because the market's doing it is, you know, again, it's that argument of, should the BBC only do what the market is failing to do? Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it should. I think the BBC does have to appeal to a broad range of of tastes. And, um, you know, if young people, they have to attract young people because they will just die a death otherwise. But, you know, if you, if you think they... Back in the day, I know I'd come home from school and listen to Steve Wright in the afternoon with, with, with friends. You know, we talk about that nowadays. You know, you, they're more likely to be talking about selling Sunset or the latest TikTok dance craze. Um, you know, they, they are definitely tuning out of mainstream programming. So you have to respond. And
0: Matt, your reference to absolute eighties as a comparison was quite a revealing one, I think, because all of those portfolio stations were created by commercial brands so that they could say to advertisers, look. This many, whatever, 18 to 34-year-olds are engaging with the Absolute brand, which is bollocks, really, isn't it, in the sense that Absolute Radio, the main radio station, is the one that the advertisers will be thinking of when they're choosing who to target. And if Radio 1 do the same trick, it's kind of smoke and mirrors, isn't it, in a way that's acceptable for a commercial company to do. But if the BBC says, look at the young audience Radio 1 is pulling in, and really what they mean is Live Lounge on YouTube and Radio 1 Dance on BBC Sounds, it's not the same as the main channel.
1: Um, you could argue that it doesn't really matter. Uh, bums on seats to the BBC or uh, bums on seats, whether they're listening to a stream on uh, an iPhone on BBC Sounds or they're uh, listening on FM to to Radio 1 in, in the morning. Uh, I think on the commercial radio side... The main reason that the spin offs launched was to provide more commercial impacts for advertisers. Uh, and so advertisers are generally buying volume rather than kind of niche audiences generally for commercial radio. So, yeah, but my um, point
0: is if Scott Mills's audience continues to get old, for example, mm. is it acceptable for Radio 1 to then point to Radio 1 Dance and say, look, we had a load of 14 year olds tuning in?
1: Well, I would argue that probably across all of their output, across all of their brands, products, portfolio, uh, they would need all of them to remain young. Uh, and turning Radio 1 into Radio 1.5, I, I don't imagine they're going to do that, but I wouldn't want them to do that. Uh, they can't ghettoize public service or ghettoize youth uh, onto channels to then keep mainstream services that become competitive to commercial radio. Obviously, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, want, to see, uh, wouldn't want to see that.
3: I'd also say that I'm not entirely convinced that Radio One Dance is going to attract a particularly younger audience than Radio One does already. I, I think actually that station would attract people that are in their, their mid to early to mid to late thirties that kind of did were part of that house scene and trance scene and uh, and really saw Radio One and what Pete Tong was doing and Seb Fontaine and uh, and and that kind of uh, heyday of Ibiza chill out parties etc. That's that's what I think that that station is going to be and i'll be surprised if it's going to attract a, a particularly younger demographic i think if they wanted to do that then they should be looking to more towards what one extra is doing and and building more um more content off the back of that brand because i'm i think that it's uh it's not the dance part of radio one that's attracting young audiences It's, it's
0: continues to be the comedy and the uh, celebrity and the pop culture side of it and speaking of one extra there's a new head of station there as well matt farron mckenzie what do we know about him
1: Uh, So he's been in on that floor in that building for quite a while, uh, working on marketing across uh, Radio One and One Extra. Uh, He's been involved in... uh Quite a lot of the outreach campaigns for for the BBC, uh, and uh, has been involved in some of the the podcasts that One Extra have done too. So, kind of interesting appointment coming from the marketing side. Obviously, the last big person to do that was Tim Davey when he was head of BBC marketing, and then he ended up running BBC uh, Radio. Uh, obviously, he's back as well. Um, so, no, it's, it's an in. I think it's an interesting appointment. Uh, I think. From my point of view, what, what I've seen in working with you know radio stations, the key thing to drive consumption is awareness. Uh, you know, people who maybe haven't heard of One Extra or haven't sampled One Extra, you know, it's a big task now to get any audiences and especially young audiences uh, to consume something new. Uh, so actually putting a marketing person in charge of that station at the point where, you know, One Extra's growth has been good, uh, but... Um, along with a lot of digital radio stations, has maybe plateaued. uh, Perhaps it's a good time to get a marketeer um, driving that forward.
0: And Mr. Jam, one of the big uh, talents on on Radio 1 and Radio 1 Dance, Radio 1 Extra is off. Where do you reckon he's going to for us? Oh, look, I think that that Jam's an, an amazing talent. Um, he
3: has been there pretty much since the inception of of One Extra, and uh, he is a real stalwart in that space. Um, but I think he's one of the finest broadcasters in the UK. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see where he is going to go. Um, A Dot left recently. Go on, he, well, I mean, look, Charlie Sloth, A Dot, both left and went to, to Apple. Apple have just rebranded mm-hmm. their stations from Beats One to being Apple Music One, or and they've launched a couple of other stations as well. It's, so that's a possibility. My my sense is is, it, Jam is more than just a, a presenter and a and, a, and a, a a radio presenter. I think that he is an industry titan, and my hope is is a, he'll continue to kind of get behind the scenes and maybe move to a label and uh, and really champion new music in a way that he's been so passionate about for a while. I think it personally, I think it would be a, sh- a shame if another presenter has gone from the BBC to someone like Apple or Spotify. Um, I, I think that that's not a, a, a necessarily positive thing for for us to continue to, to build up uh, talent. On 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 air in in the UK and then lose them to to digital. Where I'm still not entirely convinced that the audience is is there in the same way, or certainly not as interactive. So my my hope is is that he's gonna uh, he's gonna reemerge um, as at a
0: label and, and influence British music moving forward. That's why we like you, for us. It's the bold predictions. Um, actually, sticking with uh, BBC Talent... I can text Talent. him. Shall I text him? Shall I text him and <laughs> see what he says? <laughs> Where are you up to? Where are you going? Uh, speaking with BBC Talent potentially going elsewhere, Lisa, another story from BBC Radio, although this is more Radio 4, I guess, is that some of the corporation's most esteemed national radio journalists are now being asked to retrain and effectively reapply for their jobs as multi-platform reporters this is to streamline newsrooms. So you're talking about the people who make those sort of beautiful packages that you hear on PM, Hugh Sykes and Becky Milligan. Is it realistic to expect them to retool as digital and TV reporters? Is that the right thing to ask them to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I have to say I I was a bit sad when I saw this because I thought, you know, that those radio voices are, are, you know, some of them so iconic and they've defined you know british history and the kind of li- some of the live reports we've had from um you know from wars and from you know even the stuff around the pandemic you know it it's it feels like it's a very specialist skill and you know you're starting from a completely different place when you're creating radio to when you're creating television and and of course you know your skills are transferable as as a journalist um but i just think um <laughs> I don't know if they're necessarily abandoning these skills. It, it, I think that you know we're looking at the, the future. We've just been talking about podcasts and, um, and and radio for ages. You know, this is exactly the thing that people are really engaging with now is audio. And then the BBC goes and decides actually we're going to we're going to scrap that. So it seems a bit of a strange move in the current climate.
0: But then I guess Matt, it's a case of leveling it out because this has been happening for a while in local newsrooms
1: sure i think uh i think there will always be outliers who are specialists and i assume that there will still be audio specialists in in the bbc but i think to say Generally, if you're reporting, and one of the, a lot of this is coming from the BBC wanting to send less people uh, to press conferences and to interview, and um, you know, if you if you're at the heart of a story, suddenly you get you know 20 media inquiries, and eight of them are from the BBC. Uh, that isn't you can't run a, an operation that way. So I think it's more connected to that than it's we want to get rid of especially uh, formulated packages.
0: But it's kind of weird, isn't it, to think about those huge news programmes on Radio 4, you know, PM and The World at One and the Six O'Clock News, millions of people listening. It is, I mean, I've noticed, I've been driving along listening to the news and I'll hear a package from Mark Lowen in Italy and I'll think, oh, that was all right. And then I'll watch it at the news at 10 on BBC One and I think, oh, that was brilliant actually because that woman was crying when she said that, but I didn't realise that because it's actually just an audio version of a TV package. I mean, they are different, aren't they, For us, It's kind of weird to insist people make them for both things when they're both so popular.
3: Well, I, mean, I think that we have to get to a point where there is duplication of um, of, of work. And I, I don't think that there's any doubt that we need to be more efficient with resources and who's going to do what where. I, I'm not entirely sure that this is the solution, but I think that we do need to start trying things out and making sure that, you know, we aren't getting that duplication across the board um, and uh, and figuring out how we can... Not necessarily just drive costs down, but but also, you know, I, I, when content is moving in so many different spaces at, at the same time, if you've got somebody that is able to package up something that can exist on a podcast and exist in video and exist in online um, and get a wider audience in different mediums to the same piece of content, that's that's I would argue is generally a good thing. Um, I think that we just need to make sure that. Those are the reasons for doing it, and it's not just a cost-cutting exercise because because that will never work. Um, it's got to be looking at the audience and figuring out how the audience is consuming things in lots of different ways, and but making sure that the integrity of the story is as good as it can be.
2: I think it's such a a, a fantastic skill to be able to tell um, stories without pictures, and that you know absolutely sums up some of those flagship programs that you've been talking about. And I think you know what you sometimes hear in the newsrooms in, in TV is, you know, there are no pictures with that, therefore the the story's dropped. And, you know, you, there, there's so much that is actually a brilliant story, but you just don't have the visual material to, to sustain it. I, I think that that's the concern for me, you know, if those stories are still going to be told in that way.
0: We're living in a fascinating moment, because some publishers are going to be having the same conversation about whether their print articles can be turned into audio it seems. Uh, We'll talk about what the BBC and the New York Times are doing in just a moment in this space. But uh, Matt, Apple first. They've just launched their own daily news podcast, which actually passed me by completely, which tells you what a competitive world podcasting is these days. But Apple News Today, it's called. You've had a listen.
1: A lot of people hold up Apple and whatever they do is great. More and more, a lot of what they do is a load of old crap. Uh, And I'm not saying this is a crap product, but the thinking behind it seems a little bit wobbly. So really, this is connected to Apple News Plus, the news subscription service, uh, and it's a very well presented, very well put together um, catch-up of material that's on Apple News Plus. So it's basically Apple journalists using material from other journalists to make a podcast podcast. And is that
0: because the very phrase Apple journalists is a little bit complex for Infinite Loop to get their heads around?
1: Well, the bit that's more confusing is... So say I'm a publisher and I've done a deal to put my paywalled content in Apple News Plus. That I'm already a bit dubious about because the revenue splits and what they're saying I'm getting are, you know, not great, but hey, it's okay cuz I get exposure and maybe that's good for growing my audience. Then there's now an audio product and I'm probably going into audio as well as a publisher where they're using my content to sell up subscriptions to the service which makes my publication disaggregated and probably generating less revenue. So um I'm not entirely sure it's been well thought out or is good for kind of anyone. There's no real original reporting in there, and there's you know there's a lot of daily news podcasts out there. Of course, it's you know it sounds right and it's, it's it's well made, but it's just all a bit confused. And also, listening to it is hard. I was I was having a play with different devices and like it didn't appear on iPads or it appeared on iPhones, and it just seems kind of half cocked.
0: Okay. And the the big publishers that I was talking about, for as uh, so the BBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they're all now creating some kind of audio descriptions of their news stories. So is is that the next big thing, or is that just is that just lockdown budgets at play? Because they're kind of basically making news, jackanori aren't they? Like <laughs> we've got this content, let's get someone to read it out. News, jackanori I'm publishing that.
3: That sounds great. Um, I, I think that my I think a lot of this has been driven by the New York Times. I think the success of the Daily and has, has really made everybody rethink how they can get their print journalism and, and by ergo their brand to to be as strong as it can be. I, I think the Daily is an incredible product. And actually, I've become a subscriber to the New York Times because of the quality of the Daily. It's, it has been that customer journey for me. And I, I think that other people are trying to replicate that along the way. It makes sense that like long form content translates well to audio, particularly to Lisa's point that like, you know, if you'll make if you've wrote, written something without pictures then, then translating it to audio, there's a different discipline there. But it's it's got a closer relationship than trying to turn TV programs into into radio shows. And I, I think that there is value in doing this. I, I think that the key to this, though, is. IP. I think that a lot of publishers have seen that if you do a podcast, it can start getting traction and, and it can create sales in a different way that's better than than the kind of daily... Chip shop paper um, model that has been has been existing in in newspaper publishing for a while. So if you can kind of get an audience to your audio product um, and then spin it out into a into a bigger story, that could end up with you having you know a film deal or a book deal or a or a TV series deal, which can be incredibly lucrative for some of these partners. So I think it's baby steps in in that direction to kind of make sure that you own the story in a much bigger way. Um, And I'm kind of I'm kind of here for it. I feel like if you can engage audiences with your with your content and your journalism and in different platforms and it can be high quality and uh and expand the brand and then i think that's a positive thing
0: yeah i guess it's good news isn't it for news journalists listening that the publishers might be trying to get behind their work and distribute them in new ways lisa you can't say the same for arts and culture journalists at the moment we've just lost q magazine the guardian guide has gone maybe inevitable given that there's less culture going on but it's a pretty sad state at the moment at that end of the sector, isn't it?
2: It really is. Um, I I think, I mean, going back to the, the New York Times, I think that it had been described as a way in which long-form journalism can fit better into your life, um, you know, that you can, because people want to exercise and cook and do things whilst, whilst they're doing it. I mean, for me... You know, I think the whole point of long form journalism is it needs your time and attention to sit down with a big Sunday supplement or a glossy magazine and to engage with an in-depth article and and give it your full attention. I don't want to be doing star jumps while I'm cooking and checking some emails at the same time. It's just, you know, call me old fashioned, but I like multitasking. But when it comes to long form journalism, I want to immerse myself in it.
0: So did The Guardian make the wrong decision on that specific case of of axing their weekend supplements? I I mean, I think most people that i know the only reason they would buy the guardian in a print edition now given that it's all freely available online was, was the saturday edition for the magazine
2: absolutely that's exactly what i was gonna say that is the reason that i buy it at the weekend is for particularly for the guide you know i think that was fantastic about the you know the tv reviews and previews um you know really felt like it was it was spot on for for culture what's coming up you know Albert, brilliant um and I know. I do think that that's sorely missed, and I, I think it's it's really odd. You know, all the cooking supplements. um You know, you really feel that. um Yeah, there's it. It feels just a cost cutting move, really. And um as you say, when you can get so much online, you're getting news online. You want something very different at the weekends, and I think those guides work, work really well. I think it's very sad. I,
3: my my sense is, you know, I I look at recipes online now. I, I grab my phone whenever I want to cook something. I don't you know i i like looking at pretty pictures of food and i think that that's value for magazine you know i i really do love the guide i grew up with it as a student but i think actually in these days you don't look at tv listings anymore in the same way and uh, i would have i i think again it's about innovat- innovating and and trying to find new new ways of delivering that information i would really think that a, a guide podcast from the guardian would do incredibly well um i don't think we have enough good popular culture podcasts and and there there is a real audience for that um I think it's a shame, but I think that these magazines are... I, I have subscriptions to magazines. I rarely pull them out of the envelopes these days. Um, and that's just the that's just reality, unfortunately. Um, so it's about innovate or die, really. We'll be back with more media news after this.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
2: and think about
0: Work. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Lisa, Matt and Faraz are still with me. And the country's biggest TV conference was obviously completely virtual this year. We're talking about the Edinburgh International TV Festival, of course, and historian David Olasoga's keynote McTaggart lecture. Setting the tone, lots of stuff about diversity, Lisa. And last time we spoke about the Edinburgh TV Festival, you were running the thing. Uh, (laughs) How did you feel for the team that were in charge this year having to put together a virtual festival?
2: Oh, yeah, I did really feel for them, actually. Um, I think they did a fantastic job. Um, You know, there's a a great range of content there um, and the the platform worked really well. And, you know, of course, people miss the networking. You know, I think that's a a great part of Edinburgh. People, uh, you know, like to be there at two in the morning um, pitching their ideas or... (laughs) just drinking. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think, I think we're all really just craving a bit of, um, human contact and things, aren't we at the moment, but at least, um, you know, it was lots of people did come together for the McTaggart, particularly there was, you know, great reaction on social media. It really felt like, um, they made a a real sort of um a p- appointment to view um moment for that um for that lecture you know i mean it's it's interesting that the McTaggart address has typically been an elder statesman um and in fact, when I was at the festival, we had uh, michaela Cole and she was actually the first Black female to um, to deliver the lecture and and actually it was very similar themes um, you know she described um, being a misfit and an outsider describing her own journey into the industry challenging the production community to re-examine their attitudes to race and class and put people before profits and and similarly um, you know David talked about the sector's marginalisation of people of colour um, and how he'd been patronised and. Uh, you know, I think both of those lectures were incredibly hard hitting, very uncomfortable for the majority of of the white British TV industry Um, and um, and very, very personal. um, And, you know, on on the back of Black Lives Matter, you know, I think everyone really hopes that this is a really significant turning point uh, that finally, we will see change.
0: Yeah, well, and, and that's one of the things that Olusoga in his own speech was kind of putting out there is will we see change? Because he said himself, us, you know, this was a conversation that was being had in the industry, not just when Michaela Cole did her McTaggart a couple of years ago. But uh, I think he said uh, 12 years ago, there was a session at Edinburgh, which was will we ever have a black TV channel controller and they basically had the same session this year and he was saying will we be having the same conversation about diversity in 30 years with nothing really changing
3: yeah it was a it was a difficult listen i mean like firstly on the on the festival itself you know i'm i massively missed it i think that lisa's absolutely right the uh, that the festival part of the joy of the festival is is seeing people that you speak to and you you know have a chance to actually hang out with them and you know talk about the career you, you're at and the industry that you're in, and, uh, and appearing and it's, on it's, the media podcast and the TV special, yeah. obviously, <laughs> and doing and doing that as well. But like genuinely, I I credit some of the success of my career to to that festival. It's it's an opportunity to actually be humanized as a as a person in an industry that that does a very good job of dehumanizing you. And and I think that kind of not having it in person is was one of the biggest things that I. Uh, I missed during during this lockdown period. I think they did a fantastic job, but it's a it is absolutely true that, you know, that that um space works best when you are there in person. When it comes to the speech itself, I mean, look, I was going through a very very difficult time again around being a diverse face within this industry literally in minutes before that speech went to air we went on live on air on youtube you know it made me cry because of the difficulty that i was dealing with at the time with some broadcasters or a broadcaster in particular um and some of the things that he was saying was being said in much more eloquently than I was trying to deal with at the
0: time, and and that's what, what makes him jumped so- out at you. I mean, we've just picked out quotes, uh, but what's the thing that made you cry?
3: I mean, the th- I mean, the, it's it's just a, a torrent of of you know, I can't believe we're still here. I can't believe we're still having this conversation. There's there's a lot of. Um, You know, it's either difficult to know if it's just a complete failure of the industry, if there's a bit of gaslighting going on, and it's just going to continue to be this way because it's people want to support the status quo. Um, And, and that kind of sense that, you know, when you're dealing with those sort of issues, and you're having to um, uh, unpack those, those feelings about being an outsider and trying to get people to take you seriously, your original instinct is that you're on your own, that like no one there is there to back you. No one there is there to support you. You've got to do this yourself. You know, I've had to set up a company bootstrapped by myself because, you know, people didn't give me a chance. And I I still think that I had a value and voice in this, in this world. So I've had to do it on my own. And when you set up your own companies and you have these conversations that are incredibly frustrating where people say that they want to, you know, do something different or make a change and then they just disappoint you again and again and again, um... And you're doing it, you know, as like I said, as your own company within lockdown, you just feel like you're on your own. So then when you turn on a speech and you hear somebody of that stature saying those things as well, you you do get this sense of, well, actually, at least I'm not the only person that's feeling this. At least I'm not the only person that has having these experiences. And the hope is is that if the, if enough of us... You know, speak out and and you know stand up for for what we believe and what we think is right. Then maybe change will happen. And I I sent some difficult emails p- purely off the back of that speech because I was like, well, if I if he's telling me to do it and and other people are saying it, then maybe this isn't just me moaning in the corner. Maybe we are, and enough collective voices can make some change.
0: I mean, after <laughs> having just said something so personal and so eloquent, I'm now going to say something very crass uh, to you, Matt. But I wonder whether simply because a lot of people in Media Land are about to lose their jobs that actually when companies are being restructured again, employment practices are naturally going to change because this is in the air.
1: The the, the topic clearly has come up a lot, as was pointed out. Uh, and... I've been in, you know been in discussions or companies where messages have gone out about what they're going to do and then nothing really happens. Uh I I get the I genu- genuinely get the feeling that uh it's hitting home harder now but the proof will be in the pudding, won't it? It's very easy to to say you're committed to things. Um and you have to see what what changes in commissioning, in output, uh, and in attitude.
2: I think what's encouraging is that we are we are seeing a lot more content um relating to black lives matter and, and black history um, i you know i think i think we have to just be feel really optimistic about that i mean i know at um channel 4 news there's a a young black reporter Aisha Tull, and she um she pitched an idea about doing a an in depth explainer that they that they do on Channel Four News about the history of the black lives movement um, because she saw lots of incorrect information online about how black lives matter started and so they researched that for weeks and then you know came up with this really high quality in depth report on the issue and that you know that pops up on YouTube almost immediately because it's it 's trusted journalism so you know p- people like her are able to tell those stories and, and have so many different ways of, of getting that out now and, and in the same way Charlene White was really inspired uh, it, ITV News um, presenter, um, you know, talking about her own experiences and listening to David's speech and all of the conversations that were going on and said, well, actually, you know, all us adults are talking about this, but we don't talk to children. So then she had an idea about doing um, a a children's programme confronting racism. So, you know, there'll be children in the studio. They're going to be doing sort of um, animating real-life experiences that the children have. Um, and talking about it, they'll, they'll, they're going to have a counsellor in the studio, they're going to have young musicians. I mean, it's it's a real mix of, you know, music and discussion. But I think it's just really encouraging that people are being brave enough to say, OK, we need to talk about it and we need to talk about it with children very early on.
0: But with respect, I mean, the Channel 4 news audience is already on side with this, aren't they? And I mean, maybe the ITV news audience slightly less so. But when you look at the the real mainstream dealing with this topic and and the highest profile example of that at the moment is, uh, the Britain's Got Talent dance routine inspired by Black Lives Matter. That's had over 24,000 viewer complaints. It's a hot button issue this at the moment. Not everyone is comfortable with it being mainstream entertainment, basically that discussion.
2: No, that's, that's true. Um, I think it's very encouraging that, that Ofcom didn't, you know, uphold those, those complaints. Um, um, and it, it provoked a lot of debate. And of course, um, you know, we've seen how polarised the debate is, and we've seen, you know, on the back of Brexit, just how divided the nation is. Um, and this is another example, um, you know, but, but it doesn't mean to say that people should should stop producing that kind of this This content and being brave, and well, it's not about being brave, actually, it's just about representing the nation um there's nothing sort
0: i mean on that specific issue for us i mean diversity are a dance troupe, and they were doing something artistic and i mean i I thought it was great, I thought it was good that i t v stood by it, but at the same time, you know, do people complaining that essentially reenacting the death of a victim of police brutality, you know in an entertainment family show? is something that should come with a trigger warning you know did, did they have a point is that something that should just be completely brushed away because people feel that it's not the right time to voice those concerns Look, look I, th- I think that the one of the issues about this is that you you give these complaints more
3: oxygen, more oxygen than they deserve i mean the complaints were nonsense um, the majority of people that did complain didn't even watch it they kind of were complaining off the back of an article that they read and you know were whipped into a frenzy as as offcon complaints generally seem to be these days where you don't watch the content you just kind of jump on the bad wanging of, of kind of going i don't believe in that cause and i don't think i should be uh be have it rammed down my throat even though i never actually saw it in the first place it's it's kind of a little bit silly when it comes to the actual complaint itself i think that what the real story of this is is itv and i t v putting themselves in pole position as the as the broadcaster that is championing diversity both the dance troupe and and the actual cause itself and and it's it's been a real uh, it's, i think it 's been a real testament to how they 've handled it i think that ade 's appointment um to to the board in that space as the new director of diversity is is a really uh, positive thing they ha they know and they have Been vocal and clear that they need to make some changes um, as a broadcaster, both internally and with the content they're putting out there. And I think by doing the work that they did around replaying the Stephen Lawrence drama, to um, some of the Black voices that they put on the channel, to now this debate and how they've been. They have put their neck out there, and they stood by it, and they are proud of it. Is is what we, with what people want to see, and I think that that's a really, really positive thing. Um, and and I think that it's easy to get kind of swept up in the the numbers of people that complained to Ofcom and you know how how tricky the dance was, and should it have been on air, and is that even, all of these things are a kind of nonsense, really, because they are a a, a small uh, part of a, of a much bigger story, which is you know what is the uh, audience um, going to look like in in the future, and who are they going to be the program makers and uh, and the people that that voice those stories moving forward? And I think that at the moment, based on what the ITV have done, they they seem to be in a in a really good position to capitalise on that.
1: I think it was interesting the Ofcom uh, response to the complaint. Now this is kind of media geekery, but um, complaints have to what be cons- uh, complaints have for. to be uh, considered first. Like, is this worthy of a complaint? And the complaint is investigated. Um, but this didn't even, you know, this failed on the this is not worthy of complaint. Uh but also what was quite good for Ofcom, which has got very slow with responding to things over the last 18 to 24 months, um, for them actually getting out with a response within a week was relatively quick um and uh hopefully helps cut off some of the some of the discussion. I think what doesn't help is that Ofcom Announce how many complaints they get about things fairly early on, uh, and then that just sends up a bat signal uh, to a certain group of people to to pile on.
0: Sticking with big mainstream telly for a moment, uh, former BBC One boss Charlotte Moore has been named chief content officer at the BBC. Now, Fraz, how do you rate Charlotte Moore? I listen, I think Charlotte's. I think Charlotte's great, and I actually think this is a really
3: smart role for her. I think that she is one of the uh, the, the real. Um, you know she is she is a a content head and actually i think that that was one of the question marks over her application for the dg role and and if she's got enough commercial experience political experience etc um no one can come anywhere close to her with her experience when it comes to um to to making content come to life and reaching huge amount of audiences so it's it's interesting um that this role has been created and i think the question is is that is this a role that the bbc needed or is this a role that charlotte needed um and i think that that's that's what we're going to see moving forward was it a role that was created to keep charlotte into the in in the building because she is such an asset to the bbc or and isn't director general and isn't director general um or, or is and 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 uh, you know it's it, you know and it can't be seen as a consolation prize but it's difficult not to um t- to be aware that she didn't get that job and and now this job has suddenly suddenly appeared and the narrative very much looks in that direction but i think it is also in uh, it also links to everything else that's going on in the industry you know the fact that we are aware of uh the head of contents at, at places like netflix and you know apple have probably got a head of content now and you know a lot of these big big media and technology brands have these kind of demigods of of programming and content that the BBC kind of lacked because it was still in this weird kind of, here's a channel and here's a channel and here's a channel. So so bringing that all together under one banner of, of actually output and content is probably quite a smart move by... Yeah,
0: but they've got to watch that, haven't they, Lisa? Because, you know, as we discussed and have discussed already in this episode, journalists are losing their jobs, producers are losing their jobs, talent is getting paid less, we'll talk about that in a moment, and yet there's more executive roles. It doesn't look great.
2: No. Um, I think Faraz, there might be something in Faraz's theory um, <laughs> as to, you know, as to why this happened. I think, I mean, I think Tim Davy. you know, it, it's been an interesting start for him, actually. I think he's he's come out, you know, fighting, really. Um, you know, he's sort of focusing on these four distinct areas and impartiality, high impact content, extracting more uh, from online efforts and building commercial income. Um I think I think he's been very
0: I feel I should say that I can see that Lisa's reading yes, those four priorities. No, off the no, screen. I know. If anyone had them down pat, I'd be impressed. They need they need catchier uh, slogans, I, I feel. Yes,
2: they do. No, I'm <laughs> I'm hanging on his every word and uh, no. Um, so I think um you know he's he's sort of clearly put his his stake in the ground. I think, you know, he it was it was tricky with journalists in the beginning because of course um you know one of the first things was cracking down on the empire. Partiality side of things on social media. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to, to police journalists and to, to sort of, well, censor them, uh, say, you know, you can't have an opinion. And I know that obviously riled a lot of people. Um, but, it, you know, it, there is a fine line to tread. If you're a, an authoritative, trusted journalist, you do have to be impartial. You do, I think, have to be very careful about, about how you conduct yourself online uh, and it, it should really be the same as as how you conduct yourself in a in a news report, um, and, um, but you know, but the impartiality question is is so huge for the BBC at the moment. I mean, they really are under so much pressure from the government, um, you know, who potentially want to scrap the licence fee. So, um, you know, he's right to prioritise on that. He has to. You know, they really are in the spotlight politically. It
0: was quite hard to disagree with what he was saying, wasn't it, Matt? What people were complaining about was what he didn't say, I guess. Uh,
1: sure. I mean, the BBC, as we've discussed a number of times on the podcast <laughs> over the years. 15 um, years and counting, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, perennial rock and hard place. Um, it, almost every aspect of what they do is that they're sort of stuck in the middle. Um, and uh, I, I think I think Tony Hall did leave a few uh, fires for Tim to to put out. I thought Tony would have thrown himself on a few of them uh, before he left. But like, things like, you know, Gary Lineker being paid what he's paid. Whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, um, politically for the BBC, it's not a good thing. And someone should have just gone, actually, that's... I thing that comes up every time we can fix that. You know, there are a lot, and I think the social oh, media. On.
0: He's taken a 400 grand pay cut. I mean, I know he's still on over a million pounds, but. I was quite surprised to see that, actually, weren't you?
1: The problem with that is it is a good thing, but it's still a a large amount of money for a a weekly show, which actually doesn't particularly rate um, uh, on the network. And if you were starting from scratch again, it would probably be a strange thing to do. And I think there are a number of things like that at the BBC. Uh, And I think the social media side as well uh, was part of that, which Tim has got into, that he sort of needs to kind of clear the barnacles off the boats you know they've got enough trouble with uh, budget cuts and uh, government attacks and things like that there are only a certain number of fronts that the bbc can battle on
0: and just briefly speaking of presenters a friend of the show jane garvey has announced her departure from women's hour uh, that's uh, following Jenny Murray, although apparently Jane handed her resignation in before Jenny Murray did. Uh, we'll be getting the gossip from her at some point when she comes back on the show, hopefully next episode. But anyway, uh, Lisa, what did you make of that? And what do you think of Emma Barnett as the replacement?
2: I'm a big fan of Jane um, and I love her podcast with, with Fee Glover as well. Um, I mean, I, I did read one article, um, which I I found um you know, quite depressing because it was sort of suggesting, you know, um, old fuddy duddy, feminist, off you go, you know, make make way. Um, you know, I actually think that's really quite unfair. I think um I think older women have been treated really quite unfairly by by the media industry. And as soon as you're, you know, you're you're shunted off um a lot more um earlier in your career than than a lot of men are. Um and I think has you know, she was also quite downbeat sort of saying that, um, you know, in all the time that she's been doing it, the issues aren't changing and nothing's getting better. Um, for women, it all just feels really depressing. And I hope that Emma Barnett comes in and, you know, puts a really sort of, um, more, more positive start on this and, and really sort of, um, you know, as, as she did with her telegraph column, um, you know, highlighting the issues women are facing and, and championing them as, as well. Um, and, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I guess we have to move on. But um, I'm glad that um, Jane still has a podcast I can see. And also she's doing more work on the BBC as well, isn't she? So it's not the end yeah, of her. Yeah, new Radio 4 interview yeah. show coming, apparently.
0: Yeah. yeah, well, like I say, well, for, Jane, come on and we'll find out. <laughs> um, she's always brilliantly indiscreet once. she <laughs> that she's I think on the it, show. She forgets the mic's on.
1: I, I'd, love, I'd love Jane Garvey to be on the Today programme. Um, I think she'd be absolutely brilliant uh, addition to that and would actually give it some interesting personality as well as doing doing the news. Uh, I think Emma is a great talent and her talent was probably hidden a bit by being on that slot on Five Live and having more high, high profile slot on Radio 4 uh, will be will be good for her. But for her having you know that gig and um, the news night stuff she does, I mean, it's quite, she's a, an important place, an important part of the BBC.
0: Uh, Let's quickly talk about a new charity which promises to fund public interest journalism through donations. Uh, Faraz, are you on top of this? The Public Interest News Foundation.
3: Uh, I I mean, I don't know a huge amount of this. I think that we've... Um, that the, uh, the the crisis in local news has has caused a real problem, and anything that kind of plugs that gap of uh, of local news journalists and local paper, you know, we discussed earlier about magazines shutting down. I think that the issue around local journalism is is even more terrifying, and uh, is is a real uh, is is a real loss to our media landscape. And and so, if there's some anything that can kind of fix that issue, I, I welcome it. I'm not entirely sure that like it seems like we're kind of cr- creating an, an almost an, another public service publicly funded model um and that has problems when it's only funded by certain individuals like you know when there is a universal scheme like the bbc um it's it's not beholden to any one particular voice or major donor or anything like that so that's that's always problematic so i'll be interested to see how this shakes down from from those from from that perspective but I, I think as lisa's mentioned earlier in his podcast there isn't a real issue around uh public purpose journalism compared to clickbaity sensationalist journalism that has really muddied the uh uh the pool of discourse in in this country and across the world so anything that can be done to kind of correct that is a, is a good thing i'm just a little bit skeptical about the amount of impact that something like this can have
0: yeah it is kind of an american model isn't it lisa that's the thing so it's being founded by um Uh, Jonathan Hewood, who's uh, behind the press regulator in press, they're looking for donations from the big tech companies and philanthropists. But that is sort of an American model, which they do in the States, because they don't have the BBC, and they don't have an organisation like the Scott Trust funding the Guardian. Yeah, uh,
2: exactly. And I, I think it's, it's quite ironic, isn't it, that, you know, you've got, we were just talking about Harold Evans. And now, you know, to, are we saying that to do the kind of public interest news that he did, it now needs to be charity? I mean, it's quite shocking when you think about it like that. Really, you know, I think we this this should be, uh, you know, properly funded, properly supported. Very important for our democracy, for you know the the health of the nation. I mean, you know, people could kill themselves, for, you know, on what they read about COVID. You know, I think it's the fact that it needs charitable status is isn't isn't great you know I mean there's there's lots of other things that are being looked at, whether there's um, you know tax breaks, um, there's um, you know it's, it's really really challenging for publishers. I think the the model in Australia is really interesting where they're trying to make it mandatory that publishers are paid by Facebook and, and Google. Um, you know I'd li- like to think that there are ways that the market can solve this as opposed to journalism having to be dubbed as a charity.
0: But actually, Matt, if you look at who they've given donations to already, and you're talking about grants of £3,000 so and not huge amounts of money, but huge amounts of money to these very small outfits. So this is the likes of Five Pillars and The Ferret and Galdem. Those are organisations that are really struggling to get money in with a lack of advertising and are doing something different to what the BBC does and no one else is giving them money.
1: I think anything that broadens um, income streams for for media is a good thing, uh, particularly journalism and, and startups. ups Uh I think there is an interesting question about not whether journalism deserves um, charity funding because obviously the work they do as well, but as Lisa was saying, there has to be an economic model that supports news um, and that it seems to be lacking. I think one thing that's quite interesting, a lot of it's coming out of America is the sort of revival of email newsletters. So Substack, interesting platform, uh, for funding, uh, new types of journalism, uh, and individuals and small operators and getting direct funding from consumers over certain topics. And when, if you go to the Substack website, you can look at sort of the top performing, um, uh, newsletters. And they're actually quite, they are all, they've all got a niche, but they're all quite different niches. Uh, and I think those sorts of things, you know, direct funding from consumers is, is an important part of that too.
0: Okay. There is just enough time to squeeze in our legendary media quiz. The 72nd Emmy Awards took place last week, the first major TV awards show held since the pandemic began. So I'm going to ask you five questions about the night's winners and losers. All you have to do is get the correct answer before your opponents. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So Faraz, you will say? Faraz. Matt, you will say? Matt. And Lisa, you'll say? Lisa. Ready? Let's go. Which broadcaster won the most awards on the night, taking home 30 trophies in Lisa. total? Lisa. HBO. It was HBO, which Snared wins for Best Drama Series in the form of Succession and Best Limited Series in the form of what for a half bonus point?
2: Sorry, say the question
0: again. <laughs> <laughs> was, I was so
2: happy that I got a point. Just yes, fair it enough, you were carried away
0: with the moment. Uh, Watchmen <laughs> was Best Limited Series. Here's question number two. Which streaming service only took one trophy home with the Best Supporting Actor in a Drama Prize going to Billy Crudup for The Morning Show?
1: Matt.
0: Matt. Apple TV. It was Apple TV. I'm going to say Apple TV Plus, which I, I was I think about a to say brand. it was technically called Apple TV Plus. So mm, I'm going to give TV you the point, problem. Faraz. Thank you very much. Um, and a disappointing result, obviously, for them, considering how much money they piled into that. Uh, here's the third question for you How many wins did Netflix score with their record 160 nominations? I will give it to the closest guess. Uh, Faraz, 35. Yeah. Anyone else want to better that? 19. Lisa, go on.
2: Uh, 25.
0: Matt's actually closest. But, I mean, I really feel like Faraz had the balls there and just went for it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Netflix got 21 wins overall, uh, although only two during the televised awards show, uh, including prizes for Ozark's Julia Garner for supporting actress in a drama and Unorthodox's Mariah Schrader for directing in a limited series. So we've got one point each at the moment, I believe. It's exciting, isn't it? Here's question four. How many awards did Canadian comedy Shit's Creek take home? Lisa. Lisa. Uh,
2: Seven?
0: Yes, well done. Including Best Actor in a Comedy Series for Eugene Levy, Best Actress for Catherine O'Hara, and Best Supporting Actress for Annie Murphy. Here's question number five. Who made history by becoming the youngest person to win the Best Drama Actress Award for Raz? Zenyada for Euphoria. Correct. Uh, She's aged 24 for her role as a drug addict in HBO's Euphoria. Uh, Also, uh, trivia fans, only the second black woman to ever win in that category. But that has just uh, frustrated the quiz because we now have joint winners in the form of Faraz and Lisa. Well done. Thank you great can we have an emmy <laughs> uh that is it for today uh, my thanks to our guests lisa campbell matt deegan and faraz osman if you like what we're up to here on the media podcast and you want to help us keep making the show uh, then do visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round and if you make a donation even a small one you could have a future episode dedicated to you you can always catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website themediapodcast.com i've been ollie Mann, the producer rebecca grisdale sherry and the media podcast is a ppm production we'll see you in a fortnight's time bye-bye